I just got a note. Um, uh, Joseph Kunder from, from the Agape Church in, in Estonia is here. Joseph, yeah, stand up. Would you all welcome him? Yeah. Joseph has been... Joseph has been at the Friends of Estonia meeting that was taking place the last few days in Nashville, Tennessee. It's so good to have you here with us this morning. Yusuf Karsh was, was one of the most famous photographers in uh, the 20th century. And, and he was known especially for taking portraits or, or pictures of the, some of the world's most famous people. He once said that his favorite photograph was one that he took of Pablo Casals at a French abbey in 1954. They had gone to this place to, uh, for the photo shoot, and as he was setting up his equipment, he didn't know it, but behind him, Casals had taken a seat, opened up his, his case pulled out his cello, and had begun playing Bach. Well, Yosef was so uh, enthralled by the music that he said, I almost forgot what we, why we were there, but he took this picture, and it's the only portrait he ever took from the rear. But it's a famous picture that shows Casals in a chair, leaning over his cello, forever capturing the moment in which he played Bach. Years passed, and, and there was a, a showing of all these portraits, these pictures, at, the, at one of the museums in Boston. And every day, this little old man came in to view the, the uh, exposition, and he would go and stand in front of this one particular picture of Pablo Casals. And he would just stare at it. After about the third day, the curator of the museum finally decided, I got to know what's going on. And he went over and, and touched the man on the shoulder and said, Mr., can I help you? Because you've been coming here and, 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 and standing in front of this picture every day. Is there something in particular you're looking for? And, and the old man in a rather irritated voice said, hush, young man. Can't you see I'm listening to the music? Now, now picture it. Yosef captures Casals in this timeless image playing Bach. And an old man in an art gallery in looking at the picture could hear the music. Now, I mention that because I don't want our look at Acts 2 simply to be a look at the past of what the church once was, as if we're reading a book simply of history. But I hope that in looking at this, this portrait that Luke has written for us, that we are so drawn into the image 
that we can experience in our viewing the very work of God that Luke is describing. That we can begin to experience in our own lives as individuals and as a church a time and a place and a group that literally embodies the presence, the purpose, and the power of Jesus. So for next, the next few moments, we're going to look at this picture. And, and we need to ask ourselves, is the picture upon which we're gazing the picture that others see when they look at Fountain City United Methodist Church. It's a whole new community. What does it look like? Well, if you take a moment and look, you realize that this new community that has been formed by the, with the birth of the church, that first and foremost, it is a welcoming community. I've been here long enough that you all probably without Without me telling you, you probably already know my favorite Old Testament character. He is the son of Jonathan, the grandson of, of Saul. His name is Mephibosheth. And if you remember the story, you'll remember that one day um, David asked the question, is there anybody from left from the house of Saul for whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And Ziba, who was one of David's servants, who had been one of Saul's servants, said, yes, th there's a son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth, but he's a cripple. And you can tell in the tone of his voice, he's saying, David, don't even bother. But David does bother. He sends out his servants to find Mephibosheth, who happens to live in a place called Lodabar, the land of barren pastures. And they bring Mephibosheth back to the palace. And David and Mephibosheth have this, this moment of meeting. And Mephibosheth says to David, what would you have to do with a dead dog like me? Now, Ziba might have thought Mephibosheth wasn't worth the effort. And Mephibosheth might have thought that I'm not anything more than a dead dog. But David didn't seem that way. In fact, what happens is incredible. David restores to Mephibosheth all the treasures of his grandfather. David gives him land, livestock, and servants. But the best part of all is that David gave Mephibosheth a place at his table. And the closing words of the story read like this. And Mephibosheth ate every day at the table of David as one of the king's own sons. Now, friends, that is the church at its best. The church is not about simply opening the doors and shouting out to the community, hey, we're here, y'all are welcome to come. The church at its best dares to ask the question, is there anyone to whom we can show kindness 
for Jesus' sake. The church at its best is a church that's willing to go out and to search the Lodabars, the barren pastures of this world, and to find Mephibosheth, wherever he or she may be, and to say to everyone who, who, for whatever reason, began to feel as though they're nothing more than dead dogs, you're a lot more than that. You are a son. You're a daughter of the king. And there's a place for you at our table. When we get serious about being a welcoming community like that, we're going to begin to see what they saw so long ago. People added every day to their community. Secondly, this is a community where we share one another's burdens and struggles. The text says that they made sure that there was nobody in need. And they were willing to share what, what was needed. The church, again, at its best, is a place that says... I'm here with you. It's a family that says you're not going to face the dark night of the soul by yourself. It's a family that's committed to nobody's going to suffer in silence. It's a family that is committed to recognizing the hopes, the dreams, the sorrows, the struggles, the failures of all. And yet daring to invest ourselves, commit ourselves, make ourselves available to walk through the trials and the challenges of life together. Mary Lou Redding was the, um, was the editorial director of, um, of the Upper Room for many years. She went through a lot of struggles in her own life. But I want you to hear what she wrote in a devotion that she, that she published. She says, at a time of a profound upheaval in my life, God brought me into a relationship with four other people. After a time, we became a family to one another. I could call on any of those people at any time, and I did, knowing that whatever help I needed, they would give. And they were just as free to call on me for help and support, and they did that often. Once, while we were praying for one another, one person thanked God for the coming home feeling that we had whenever we were together. And that phrase became for me a symbol of the freedom we felt to express our affection for one another, our weakness, our fears, our strengths. These people made God's love visible for me. And that's the church. It is not just a place, but a love you know you can depend upon. Sharing the burden. The church, the community, is also a community of, of, of joyful generosity. They gave with glad hearts. 
with joy. Now, now this isn't about money unless, it, unless you want it to apply to money. And we all know what the Bible says about generosity. They gave liberally. Um, and, and, and you see that throughout the book of Acts, particularly when they're collecting the funds for the struggling people of, of Jerusalem. The Macedonian churches beg to be able to participate. They want to give and great joy in giving. And, and I will say this, that God has blessed Vicki and me in so many ways. And, and it is a joy to be able to give, to give our tithe, to give our faith promise, to give to whatever the opportunity might be. But there's a part of this that gives me a little heartburn. Because I think we all know that generosity goes far beyond just our pocketbooks. That generosity is not just about money, but, but, but our whole lives. And to be honest, I may, I'm not always as generous as I should be about my time or my, or my energies or my attention. And even though I don't like to admit it, the fact is there are many times I've been like that priest and that Levite. I've, I've seen the opportunity. I've seen the suffering. And I chose to pass by on the other side. And I can tell myself that's because I got people waiting on me. I got things to do. But when I'm alone at night, that just doesn't really suffice. If we're going to be the kind of church reflected in this picture Luke is making. We need to be generous, joyfully generous in everything. With our time, our talents, our abilities, our experience, with our empathy, with our compassion. Joyfully generous in all things. And then there's the last one. This community, it's a community, and it shouldn't surprise us, it's a community where great things are taking place. Signs, wonders, awe. I love that. Just imagine the activity, the energy going on as God's Spirit fills their lives and works through their lives. It would be very easy and it would be wrong for us to look at that church and to think of all the great things they were doing, people being healed, people being saved, uh, you, you know, the church growing. It would be wrong for us to look at that and, and bemoan the fact that we don't see great things going on. Take a good look. Because, my friends, God is doing great things all around us. Every day for the last two weeks, as I've walked to the far end of the hall, I walk past a bulletin board, and in the lower right corner of that bulletin board is a number, 180,000. Off the top of your head, who knows what that 180,000 is? It's the number of, of meals that we've packaged over the last five years. That's the number of people, hungry people, who are having the hunger pains ended. 
because people in this church said, Lord, we want to be a part of, of your redeeming, transforming work. And they have come together to package those meals. God's doing a great thing. You want to see God doing a great thing? Come down to this place on a Tuesday night. Walk in to celebrate recovery. See broke, the broken lives that are made whole. See hopeless people who were finding hope. See people who, who a couple of years ago were struggling mightily and, and, and the people, the young men and women, they are becoming because of God's spirit at work in their hearts and minds. Stick around here on Saturdays when they come back for step studies. It's amazing what God is doing among us. If you want to see the great things, you ought to take a look on some of the small groups we got going on, whether it was the Wednesday night studies, and they've been great this year, or, or our men's Bible study on Tuesday morning. 25 years they've gotten together to study the Word. Or the Thursday night intercessory prayer group that gets together every week. Or the countless smaller Bible studies that are taking place in this church. You want to get excited? Go see what our children are learning about Jesus and being a disciple on Sunday mornings and, and, and Wednesday nights. I get excited thinking about our youth and the mission trips they're taking this summer. And in fact, I learned right before church, the youth came to Daniel and said, we want to go on another global mission trip next year. Not in two. And folks, you're going to have the opportunity to help make that happen. But when kids are saying, hey, we want to go and serve Jesus, friends, God's doing something great among us. Every week, we got GED classes. And I am so grateful for the volunteers who teach in that because people of this church are given hope and opportunity to folk who wouldn't have it otherwise. And God's making a difference. This Saturday, we're going, to have a, we're going to have an opportunity to show hospitality to a whole lot of people in that, in that um, spring cleaning cell. The list goes on. I tell you this, I know that God is present at work and doing great things because every Sunday morning in the music in this church, I know he touches my heart and he lifts my spirit. God's doing wonderful things and you, you know what? He can do so much more if we're willing. Wes Seelinger is an author, an Episcopal priest, and a motorcycle enthusiast. And in one of his books, he uses two images to portray the church. One image is a lawn, a riding lawnmower. Now I can identify with that. I've had riding mowers. And you know, riding lawnmowers, they're slow, they're steady, um, they, they plod along, they're safe for the most part. And when you get through with them, everything looks so pretty, doesn't it? But a motorcycle, well, it's daring. It's risky. It can be fast. It can be thrilling. It's going to take you on an adventure. 
My neighbor next door this winter bought himself a new Harley. Every day when he cranks that bad boy up, I wish, oh, do I wish. And then I look at Vicky and I know better. <laughs> but he asked the question in the book, which image better reflects our church? Are we settling to be safe, predictable, plodding along and making the world a little nicer, a little prettier, wherever we are? Or do we want to throw in the gas, jump on board, and see what this old baby can do? That's his words. Now, I don't know if I'm all that comfortable with his image, but I got to tell you my prayer. Oh, my prayer is that we would be a place where we're getting filled with the Holy Spirit, that we're taking hold of Jesus afresh, that we're throwing caution and reservation and limits away, and that we're willing to let God show us what this old baby can do. I guarantee you this. When we get to that point, what God will show us will indeed fill us with awe. So be it. Amen.